welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. today if you want to join us. Now, I may be the only person in here that does this, but do y'all have TV shows that you like to watch weekly? Does anybody in here have like a favorite TV show? A few of us? Okay, good. Okay. Well, you know, um, a lot of times the TV shows that my wife and I watch come on those big networks like ABC, NBC, and stuff, and they only come on at a certain time a week, like at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. And I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what my favorite TV show is, but during the spring and sometimes the fall when that bad weather comes through, it's always in the middle of my favorite TV show. And so, yeah, okay, so you guys are with me. You've been here, and you know where I'm going with this. During my favorite TV show, here comes the storm, and right at that most dramatic moment when things are really fixing to go down, you're like, what's about to happen? All of a sudden, you hear that annoying screeching sound, and up on the screen pops your favorite weatherman who is no longer your favorite because he's in a, um, getting in between you and your show. You guys know what I'm talking about? And, and he usually he's very clean and relaxed. He's like um, on the morning news, he's like, today's weather, it'll be 73 with a chance of rain, you know, and all of that. But when it comes to tornado, he's got his sleeves rolled up, his tie's undone, he's sweating, his hair's messed up, he looks like he's been in battle. He's like, okay, I'm sorry to interrupt your program, but you just really need to know about this. And then he spends the next two hours showing you the same radar pattern. He's like, there's, there's some swirl right here, and if you're in Salado and Locust Grove, you need to be prepared. Seek shelter now. You guys with me? I hate that guy. I know that's, that's wrong. I can't hate anybody. I strongly dislike that he interrupts my TV show. Anyway, what his job is to do is to give you a warning. There is danger present, danger is coming, and you need to take action. Are any of y'all those people that when the weather's bad, you turn on the TV just to see the weather guy? Okay, good. You got, uh, there's my grandma. You're, you're the problem. <laughs> you're the problem. Um, to see what the weather guy says, because he's supposed to tell you, you are in danger. You are in danger of something bad happening to you. You need to take action at this moment. And you notice that it's always when you're in imminent danger that a warning comes. Warnings only come when something's happening. You don't see that guy pop up in the middle of your favorite TV show, hair a mess, sweating upset. Sorry to interrupt your programming, but I need you to be aware. There are currently tornadoes moving through Billings, Montana. There's no chance they're coming to your house, but you just needed to be aware. Take action now. Warnings only come when it's something that is probably going to affect you, something that is probably, uh, you're in danger of probably coming into it. Now, it's the same way with the scripture. When the scripture gives us a warning, it's never a warning about something that probably won't happen to you. Like, you will never struggle with this sin, but let me warn you what happens if somebody does. Warnings in scripture always come for something that is most likely to affect you. We've been in a series called Through the Motions, and we're looking at this. It's really turned into a banter between the chief priests, the Pharisees, and Jesus Christ as they're discussing the differences and their different views on how God sees religion. And what it really comes down to is the Pharisees are living a dead religion. It consumes their life, but they're living a dead religion. Jesus is arguing for the point of not a dead religion, but a living faith. And there's, there's obviously a discrepancy between those two particular viewpoints. And in today's scripture, Jesus turns and he starts giving a warning 
warning to his people. He's done bantering with the Pharisees. He starts giving a warning to those listening to him. And he gives us a warning not because it's nothing that we'll ever deal with, because it's something that we are in danger of falling into. If you've got your Bibles with you, Matthew 23, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus spake to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works. For they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with, with one of their fingers. All right, keep your Bibles open. We're coming back to this. So Jesus is going to start talking about the Pharisees. You notice he turns his attention from the Pharisees, who he's been talking to for two chapters now. And he's like, I'm talking to y'all, but I'm done with you. And now the rest of you, you need to listen. And he starts off by going ahead and saying, listen, these are religious leaders. You should listen to them and do what they say if it comes from the Scripture. But then Jesus turns and he says, but don't do what they do. Now let's notice who Jesus is talking to here. You notice that he's no longer talking to the Pharisees. I think he's done arguing with them. He's realized that he's not getting anywhere. But he turns to the group around them. He turns to the multitude, it says, to the crowd and to the disciples. To be a disciple of Christ is just to be a follower of him and a student of him. And that's me. And I hope that's you, right? Like, like if, it talks, if the Bible talks about disciples, we may not have been physically there, but if Jesus addresses his followers, his students, he is talking to us. And so he's sending us a message today, a warning of something that we can easily fall into. He's like, these Pharisees over here, those guys, the, the guys who appear really perfect and holy, don't do that. that that's, that's not what holiness looks like is what he's getting to See, the Pharisees, while they were a religious elite, they had a bunch of extra rules that they had put together. There were the rules that were in the Bible, and they're like, yes, we need to do this, but they come up with all these extra man-made things, and, and they were just unnecessary from Jesus' perspective. I kind of think it's like those dog shows. You guys ever see those dog shows on TV? Like, you know, there's, there's the ones where they trot the little pretty dogs out there, and they stand, and they look at them, but my favorite dog shows are the ones where they do the tricks. You guys know what I'm talking about, and they train the dogs and do stuff? Like, this dog, all of a sudden, he finds his way through a maze. He kicks up on his front feet and walks on two legs. He does all these amazing things, and it's really cool, but it serves no purpose at all, right? I, I don't remember a single episode of Lassie where little Timmy falls into a well, and he's like, Lassie, go get help. And Lassie has to go get help by walking just on his front paws and balancing there. It's a useless thing that we teach animals to do. And just the same way, the Pharisees had been teaching useless things for the people to follow that didn't get them anywhere. It was extra and they were in danger of, of um, falling into a dead religion. Now, the warning here is that there is a danger, and Jesus puts it this way. He says, these things that the Pharisees are doing, these things that these religious people are doing in their religion, it's like a heavy weight placed on people's shoulders. They're, they're taking extra things that are unnecessary, and they're weighing people down with them. They're pulling them down and making them do extra things. And for years and years and years has this not been the story of Christianity. That as Christians and as believers, we come up with these extra man-made things that aren't biblical. I want to be clear. There are things that biblically we are required to do and to not do, but there's all this extra stuff that has come up over the centuries that Christians have done. Many of you are probably familiar with the concept of like a monk or a nun, right? And, and they come into this society and it's like, if you really want to serve God, you've got to come and you've got to get up all of this stuff 
stuff, and here's the rules you have to follow. A lot of monks used to take a vow of silence, where they couldn't talk, that way they could only hear. Now, there's nothing really wrong with taking a vow of silence. To be honest with you, it probably would hurt a few of us to take one for a couple of days. But when you say this is a requirement for you to grow close to God, there's something wrong with that. In the Middle Ages, people would walk around, there was a group of people that would walk around and they would carry a whip. And as they walked through a town, they would beat themselves with this whip. And they would say, I am a sinner and I'm repenting. And they would beat themselves as repentance for their sins and punish themselves for the things that they had messed up, thinking that it was necessary to get close to God. The Bible, there, it's good to be repentant about sins. It's good for us to be sorrowful for sins, but there is nothing biblically that requires us to punish ourselves for our own sins. And in the modern church, do we not have rules and things that we come up with that are extra biblical that we say, this is what makes a good church person. This is what makes us behave the right way. This is, this is what is expected of you as a member, things that are extra biblical. It's been the story of Christianity for centuries, and I expect it will go on. And Jesus gives us this warning, don't fall into that. Don't put your focus on the wrong things. Don't put extra burdens on people weighing them down because that's not what I came for. Jesus called the Pharisees for this hypocrites. He said, you know what? You love to put extra burdens on other people. You love all these extra rules, he said, but the truth is, and Jesus knowing their heart is, the truth is when nobody's looking, you don't do everything you require of everybody else. The quote from last week that we used, my favorite Tozer quote, said this, a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on themselves. A spiritual man is hard on himself and easy on others. We have to ask ourselves as a church and as individuals, which category do I fall onto? Do I, do I say there's all of these things I need to follow, but I'm really easy on myself if I break one of those rules? I'll jump all over you if you do it, but you know, if I do it, it's not that big of a deal. Are we the kind of people where we look in the mirror continually saying, I have sinned, I have messed up, I need to correct this in my life, but when somebody else messes up, we give them the same grace that Jesus Christ gives us? Which kind of men and women are we? Are we like the Pharisees in a dead religion, or do we live the living faith that Jesus has called us to? Now, I want to be clear about this as we talk about this. I'm not talking about never having expectations for you. I hope that you have expectations for me as your pastor. I have expectations for you as followers of Christ and members of this church. It's very important that we live the way that Christ called us to. So this is not saying live however you want, show up to church, and you're okay. That's not what I'm getting at. You are called to be a moral authority in the world. When you go into the world, when we go out those doors, the Bible says that you are a light. You know what light does? It chases away the darkness. And so when we go to work, when we're with our family, when we're with our friends, our job in the world is to be a light that chases away the darkness. You are a moral authority. You're supposed to know right from wrong. You're supposed to stand for right. You're supposed to hate wrong. But you can't do that in the world if you don't do it in your own house when nobody is looking. And so we are in danger sometimes of these heavy burdens that we say everybody must follow this and giving ourselves too much grace when we don't give it to others, when we should look at our hearts first. See, what we're actually doing is this, is when we decide it's not okay for you to do something, but if I mess up, it's not a big deal. We're actually doing God's job. We were taking upon ourselves this responsibility of saying, I decide who should do what when. 
And that's not our job. That's God's job. And when we do that, we are going to mess everything up. I don't think there's a person in here, and I love you all very dearly. None of y'all would be good at being God. You would have it all messed up. And I'll put myself in that. God is so good. And God chooses to do his work this way. When he could punish us, he offers us grace and mercy. When he could be angry at us, he loves us kindly to repentance. And Jesus, in fact, put it this way. In a different passage, he talks about the Pharisees laying burdens on others, but he says this. He says, come to me, you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. That's what Jesus Christ said. And so when a dead religion puts heavy burdens on people, a living faith, a living faith makes their burden lighter. If you look at what Jesus did in the religion that we serve in, our entire faith is based on the concept of freedom. It's not based on freedom like America. I can do and say what I want to. It's based on freedom from things that weighed us down. Every person in this room was born carrying a burden of sin. All of the mistakes that we make, all of the things that we do wrong, we carried it heavily on our shoulders. And Jesus Christ came here not to point out our burdens, not to say that's a horrible thing that you did. He came here to say, give me your burden. Let me take it from you. And he took that burden and the punishment that went with it, and he took it and he gave his life to take care of it for you. In the Bible, the Bible says, cast your cares upon Jesus. So when you have problems and anxiety, when things aren't going your way, Jesus says, put it on me. Take the burden off of you and put it on me. He doesn't say, just forget about it. He says, put your burdens on me. Cast your cares on me. And so a, a living faith has a light burden. We are in danger of putting people in bondage to unnecessary burdens that the scripture does not require, and Jesus warns us about it here. And I wonder, as I think about that, why are we drawn to that type of religion? Why are we drawn to a faith that says, I've got to do all these extra things to make God happy? Or that I put all these extra things on other people, saying that's what you have to do to make God happy. Why do we do that when there is a, a lighter living faith that we can carry. Like, there's no contest. Do you want to walk around with hundreds of pounds of something on your shoulders, or do you want somebody to carry your, your extra stuff for you? Which one do you pick? But we continually pick dead religion, and dead religion, and dead religion, and not living faith. Why do we do that? Maybe the answer is found in the Pharisees. Jesus is going to explain why he says this about the Pharisees, continuing, continuing on in verses 5 through 10 here. This is what he says about them. But all their works they do for to be seen by men, of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief uh, seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So Jesus sheds some light on what's going on with the Pharisees. He said the reason that they are stuck in this dead religion is because they are married to the idea of what people think about them and people's opinions. That brings us to our second warning here. Warning, living a dead religion will cause you to pursue recognition. 
I think I missed the first one. Living a dead religion will cause you to pursue recognition. And that's what the Pharisees did here. It gives us some biblical examples of how they acted. And right here, just in this scripture, he says, number one, he said they enlarged the borders of their robes. Now, to us, that doesn't mean very much, but you have to understand that the culture of the time, that priests and holy men, and this is biblical, they wore a very special border, maybe had some tassels and stuff, around the edge of their robes, and that was an identifier. This is a holy man. Now, what the Pharisees had begun to do is to make sure that everybody noticed that they were holy, is they had started to make them really, really big and really, really easily seen. And that way, walking down the road, people would be like, ah, there he is. There's a holy man. And they walked around carrying that and almost kind of swishing it around like, look at what I am and look at how I'm dressed and look at, and look at what God has made me. It goes on here and it says a word that I can barely pronounce. I've practiced all week. Phylacteries. What this was, it was a box in which the Pharisees would carry scripture. And there's nothing wrong with carrying scripture with you. And in fact, it would be good for all of us to do that. But as time went on, these little boxes that carried a very small roll of scripture that they could pull out and study when they had spare time, those got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not because the scripture was growing, and it's not because the scripture was even growing in their heart. It's because they wanted people to see these things. These Pharisees would have been great actors. These are some more examples. In the 1920s, anybody remember the 1920s? Brother Danny? No, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, the 1920s, there was a new breed of entertainment in America. There was a radio in every household, and for the first time, there were what was called motion pictures. We call them movies now, like going to the movies and you get popcorn and you watch it. But the problem was, while they had figured out how to record people's actions, the visual part of it, they had not yet figured out how to record people's voices quite yet. And so what we had was something called silent movies. Now seriously, has anybody ever been to a silent movie? Nobody? Okay, well, this is about 100 years ago, so that's probably good. These silent movies would come out, and the very first ones would actually come with sheet music, and there would be a piano in the front of the movie theater, and as the actors were on screen, the pianist would get up there, and they would play the music, the background music, to help give it some life. And even though you couldn't hear the characters, you could figure out what they were feeling. Now, in order to communicate that, in order to communicate their emotions and their thoughts, they had to be like overly motion here, like very, very dramatic in their motions. You, nobody is going to sit there and watch a silent film with no sound of two people sitting at a table conversing and just their lips are moving. Like, nobody knows that. And so, instead of whispering, I love you so much, they had to come up with actions that betrayed their love. So they're like, oh. You know, very, very, very dramatic. My favorite from the 1920s is Charlie Chaplin. You guys know him? It's like a, a precursor to the Three Stooges, slapstick comedy. And he had the best facial expressions in betraying what he was thinking of. One of my favorites, he's in a lion's cage. He gets locked in a lion's cage at a, at a circus, and he's acting all big and bad, and he goes over there, and he stands next to the lion that's asleep, and the thing stands up and roars at him. And he runs off to the other side, the lion lays down and goes back to sleep. But as he's standing there, he's looking at the camera, and he now has to portray fear. He can't just say, ah, I'm scared. He has to portray fear. And so he's, he's looking at the camera. He's, in this huge motion trying to get relief to us. The Pharisees would have been great actors at that. They did the exact same thing, these huge, dramatic actions to get people's attention. The Bible tells us that when they would go and they would give their offerings, they would wait until it was full. That way there was a lot of money to jingle in there and they would throw their money into the offering plate so everybody would hear it and then they'd pretend like they didn't know what was going on. Like, pink, jingle, 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 everybody looking and they loved it. 
The Bible also tells us that the Pharisees, Jesus called us out on this, they prayed at certain times during the day and somehow through no fault of their own, every day they just happened to be at the corner of the busiest street in Jerusalem on that day. And so they would stand there and say, oh, it's time to pray. They'd look at their watches, sun, whatever it was, and they say, it's time for me to pray. I know it is. And there on the corner with hundreds of people around them, they would stop and they would pray loudly. Dear God, thank you that I'm better than Bob. Bob is a sinner. Unlike me, God, thank you for making me holy. And they would draw attention to themselves. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. It gets even dumber, the things that they would do. Pharisees routinely walked around with bruises and like broken noses and things. Because as they were walking down the street, should they see a beautiful woman in an attempt to make sure everybody knew that they weren't having any impure thoughts, they would close their eyes and do a very dramatic, oh, God, give me strength. And they would walk straight into a wall and knock themselves over in this dramatic show of making sure everybody knew that they were not looking at a woman inappropriately. And as people would help them up, bloody and bruised, it is just more important to me to follow God than it is even my perfect health as I walk into walls and my absolute favorite. The Pharisees were obviously very humble. You've learned a lot about this. And, and they would show their humility by walking down the streets in a humble posture walking like this, and if somebody else was lower than them, they'd get way low. Being humble before God, I'm so humble. I'm humble before God. I'm probably the most humble man in the city. I am the king of humility. And they would walk around drawing attention to themselves for things that they said they were serving God in. But Jesus looks at them and he says, that right there, that is not a picture of holiness. That's not what it means to be a follower of God. Now, those are very extreme examples. Like nobody in here is walking into walls to avoid looking at people in the wrong way. But we still do these same things for attention. We, we still sometimes hope, even if we're not that dramatic about it, that we get recognized for our service to God. Have you ever seen someone or have you ever done it yourself might be the better question. And boy, you drop a large wad of money in the offering plate and you might not wave it around, but you might just secretly help. Man, I hope somebody saw that. Did you know it's easier to fill positions in a church that come with a title and a esteemed prestige than it is to get people into the cleaning ministry? People looking for recognition, wanting to work because people love them. Social media, I think, is the biggest, maybe blessing for Christians, but also a curse. Social media is all about me. Look at me. And I want to be clear here. If you have social media, it is an extension of your voice. It is part of how you reach the world. And so when people see you on social media, they should be able to identify you as a follower of Christ. But so many Christians, I see it once a week, we do a good deed, and then what do we immediately do? We rush to post it. You know, I had such a blessing today. I saw a homeless man, and I was able to provide them food, and, da -da, and they tell this whole story, and they phrase it like humble, like I'm thankful God did this for me. But what they're really saying is, look at what I did. I've even seen pictures of people taking pictures of their outstretched arm with a McDonald's bag, handing it to someone, saying it is such a blessing to give. And we tend to sometimes look at that. Those may be extreme examples, and I'll be honest with you, this is the one I struggle with. I've prayed a lot this week to prepare this message, is pursuing recognition for what you do. And so I know if I struggle with it, there's at least one other person in here that's with me. It's something that we all sometimes fall into, but that is a picture of dead religion. See, God's design was never for us to be recognized. God's design was never for us to be seen. God's design was for people to see God through us. 
And so when we do things that should be done for the glory of God, he didn't want us glorifying ourselves. He wanted us glorifying him by being imperfect and preaching the grace of God. That's what our job is. Not saying, look at how good God has made me or look at the good things I do. Our job is to walk around with a true humility. I'm the worst person that's walked the face of the earth. But God loves me and he gives me grace and mercy and he forgives me of my failures. And that's what we want people to see of us. And while that may not sound fun and you may wonder, why would you do things that nobody will ever say thank you for? Why would you do things that nobody will ever give you attention for? It's for this reason. God gives us something bigger. God gives us something bigger than people's opinions. He has this amazing calling for us. Let's let's read verses 11 and 12 here. But he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus Christ calls us to being servants. The last take-home truth is warning. Living a dead religion will steal your calling. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, that's okay, because I don't really want to be a servant anyway. Jesus goes completely counterculture here, and he lays out this calling to Christians. Your job is not to be great. Your job is to be small. Your job is not to be noticed. Your job is to be unnoticeable. Your job is not to be served. Your job is to serve other people, to make sure that they have what they need. And while that may not sound like a very big calling, it's a huge calling. Because when the God of the universe decided to take a human form, you know what he came as? He didn't come as a rich man. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as anything else. He came as a servant, a lowly carpenter who spent his life serving and helping and taking care of others. There is nothing that God does that is not honorable. And so when God calls us to the same calling that he himself walked in on this earth, we know that that is a valuable calling. It's something that we should be excited about. It's something that we should pursue with all of our hearts. I want to be a servant for God because that's what Jesus came to. When he calls us to this, he calls us to something bigger than ourselves. Every human being on earth is looking for something bigger than themselves to be a part of. It's why here in just a couple of months, if football season starts like it should be, there will be so many people running around saying, my football team won, and they will live and breathe on every inch that a little plastic ball or leather ball moves up and down a field. Uh, Razorback fans won't be saying much about winning, so we can be humble. It's going to be easier for us. But people will live and breathe. They want to be part of something bigger than them. It's why people dedicate themselves to saving the wells, to changing the world, to starting something that's going to last longer than them. We want to be bigger, or we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And when we come here and we seek um, attention for ourselves, we look for people to give us, uh, to, to talk up about us because we're so good, we miss this. See, God gives us a calling, and when God gives you something, it is always a gift because he is perfect. And so he gives us the gift of being a servant. God has given us this blessing. So I want to ask you this question this morning. Do you see your faith as only a ticket to heaven, or do you see it as a calling to be something, a part of something bigger? Do you see your, your faith as a ticket to heaven, or a calling to be something bigger than yourself? If you answered the first, then my faith is only about getting me to heaven. My faith is only about escaping hell. You're living a dead religion. 
But if you have the heart, and if we can manage to grow in the heart, that I've been called to something bigger, and it's a precious calling to me, that's what a living faith looks like. Which one am I, and which one are you? I want to tell you a story this morning. It's a little lengthier than the stories I tell, but I want to tell you a story about a man named Hudson Taylor. We should have some pictures coming up here in a second. Hudson Taylor was a missionary in the mid-1800s to China one of the most servant-hearted men ever. And I, I want to just take a second to tell you about his ministry and how he served. Have any, have any of you ever heard of Hudson Taylor? Okay, good. That's good. That's, that's going to help make my point here. So Hudson Taylor, you've probably never heard of him, but he was called at a very young age to be a missionary to China. And in this, he dedicated himself radically to this calling to serve the people of China by taking the gospel to them, by sharing with them the love of Jesus Christ. And even at that moment that he surrendered that calling, he knew that he couldn't go just yet. And so he dedicated himself to preparing to being a servant. He lived a relatively wealthy lifestyle, or maybe a comfortable lifestyle, and he moved to the bad part of town where he got a little shack, and he purposely took the mattress off the bed, and he learned to sleep on just boards. Because when I go to China, I'm not going to live in luxury. When I go to China, I'm going to sleep on beds just like this. And so he spent years preparing to go to China by getting rid of the luxury in his life. He spent all of his time studying scripture and praying and focusing on God and the calling that God had for him. He felt after a while that God was calling him. He said, if you're going to do this, you do it by relying on me only. And so while many missionaries go from church to church asking for money, asking for help, you know, support my ministry, Hudson Taylor did his entire ministry by asking only one person when he needed something. That person was God, and he asked in prayer. He had an opportunity to practice this at a very young age. He had a job. He was giving most of his money away. And one Friday, his boss forgot to pay him. And he realized this is an opportunity to practice relying on God. And so as the days went on, as he went back to work and the pay never came and his boss never asked or never gave it to him, he made the decision, I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to let God take care of it. And when Hudson Taylor spent literally his last cent, I don't mean that he was like out of his weekly money. I mean, he had nothing left. His boss came to him and said, I've made an accounting error and I never paid you. And God took care of Hudson Taylor in that moment, preparing him for what he was going to do in China. And Hudson Taylor tells stories again and again and again of being down to his last penny when money miraculously shows up, of having missionaries about to get off a, board to, uh, a, a boat to come join him, having nowhere for them to live, and in the last hour, a house becomes available that can house all these people. He practiced his entire faith asking for nothing from anybody except for God. At 21 years old, he gets on a boat and takes a five-month voyage to China. At this time, there were only five cities in China that allowed Europeans to come in. He was from England. Only five cities. And in those five cities, there were about 100 missionaries in the entire um, country of China. Now, that may sound like a lot of missionaries, but there's roughly 50 people here today. If you look around, in one of the most populated countries in the world, there were only twice as many people as are sitting in this building today taking the gospel to them. And as Hudson Taylor got there and the missionary stayed in these big cities, he felt God call him, you must go inland. You've got to go where nobody has gone before, places that can only be reached by a boat, places that there is no luxury, that there is nobody to protect you, even places where you may lose your life. And Hudson Taylor said, God, I will go. 
And as he went in, he realized something, that in the big cities of Shanghai that got a lot of shipping traffic, he kind of blended in. But when he got into the inner parts of China, these people had never seen a white man. And they thought that he was funny in the way that he dressed. And he was kind of like a circus clown as he came in. He would get a lot of attention of people wanting to look at him in his suit and the way that he dressed, the way that he wore his hair and everything. And he realized at this moment, people are coming to see me, not for the message that I have, but because they think I'm interesting. They're not even hearing my message. And so he made a radical decision. You can see the difference in his dress in these two pictures. On the right side, that's how he would have dressed when he got there, but he got rid of his clothes and he began wearing traditional Chinese clothes. He assimilated to their culture completely, learned their language, everything about them, their food, how they talked, how they interacted with each other, and he went into this 100%. He also shaved his head and he began to grow. You guys have probably seen it. It's called a cue that like on the crown of your head, that pigtail that the Chinese wore back at this time. And he assimilated completely to their culture, becoming one of them so he could take the gospel to him. And he was mocked and he was criticized by other missionaries. <laughs> here comes Hudson Taylor. He came here to convert the Chinese and they've made him Chinese. That's not how that's supposed to work. Some people even looked at him and said, no self-respecting man of God would wear a ponytail like that or dress in the clothes that the people were trying to reach. But Hudson Taylor's ministry kept growing and growing and growing. After returning to England for a short time, he came back with the largest single group of missionaries at that time that had ever went to China as a group. 16 of them. It doesn't sound like a big number. 16 people going, and they went for the same purpose that Hudson Taylor went, to assimilate to the culture, to spread the gospel, and to go without asking of anything from anybody. As time went on, Hudson practiced asking God for whatever he wanted. He asked for uh, money. He began to ask for missionaries. He said, God, I need 20 more missionaries to work in this ministry. More than 20 came. He then prayed, God, I need 70 more missionaries to come. He got 74. He said, God, I need 100 new missionaries. He got 102 missionaries coming to spread the gospel across the, the country of China. By this time, Hudson Taylor has more missionaries working with him and under him than the entire world rest of the world gave at the point that Hudson Taylor entered China. His ministry grew, his ministry grew, and his ministry grew, and he began to break rules that nobody would break. He sent unmarried women on the mission trail by themselves, scandalous at that time, that they would dress that way and be somewhere without a man chaperone. People said, Hudson Taylor, you can't do that. He said, I'm spreading the gospel. He broke every rule. Hudson Taylor spent 51 years, 51 years here, and maybe the biggest moment in his ministry is when his structure that he built was falling apart. People were fighting. They were tired of living in poverty. They were tired of doing God's work for them. They were having a hard time understanding what the purpose was, and it was during that time when his missions organization was falling apart that one of his children contracted meningitis and lay on her deathbed. And in a time when Hudson Taylor had a right to say, you guys shut up and focus on me. I can't handle you right now. I'm dealing with my own things at home. Hudson Taylor continued to take care of his family and he was always a servant to those who were subordinate towards him. It's recorded that the, the people that were fighting and arguing, it wasn't fixed because he got on to them. It wasn't fixed because he preached at them. It's when they saw that Hudson Taylor losing a daughter continued to serve them. Their boss continued to serve them and put them above himself that they realized what they were doing there and went back to work. Listen to what happened. 51 years, 51 years, 
in China, Hudson Taylor is responsible for taking 800 missionaries to China. 800 missionaries. He started an orphanage that helped 2,000 children. There are countless churches across China because of Hudson Taylor. And he is responsible for the salvation. Uh, he is responsible for leading 18,000 people to Christ. One historian put it this way. said, Hudson Taylor is the most... Uh, let me find my wording here. Hudson Taylor is the most influential missionary in Christian history since the Apostle Paul. And this is a man that did not own a mattress. And you didn't know his name before today. Even today, there's a lineage of Christians and the gospel going all the way back to Hudson Taylor that they're fighting a country that says you cannot worship God there. And he didn't do all of this. He didn't do all of this by putting unrealistic expectations on people. He didn't do all of this by seeking a title for himself. The people in England, the missions boards in England, they thought he was a loon, this guy with a ponytail that wears silk pajamas and walks around in them. He did it by being a servant. And we're at a crossroads as individuals and as a church today. Which way are we going to go with this? We've been moving towards this message for a long time. Are we as a church and we as individuals, are we going to, if I could have the musicians please, are we going to pursue God as sacrificial servants? Are we going to keep our focus in the wrong places and on the wrong things? Which one are we going to be at the end of the day?